This is The Kicker, CJR's podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Vernon. This week, I'll talk to my colleague Matthew Ingram about a piece he wrote for CJR questioning whether we've reached peak podcast. We'll discuss whether the news of a couple outlets pulling back means that the pod bubble is bursting. But first, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, and it's already been quite a week. On Sunday evening, a second accuser spoke to The New Yorker, alleging abuse by Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. That was followed by Michael Avenatti claiming that he represented a third accuser. After a few days of doubts over whether Avenatti had, in fact, been hoaxed, on Wednesday, he produced a sworn affidavit from his client, Julie Swetnick, who claims she had attended parties in high school where Kavanaugh was present and gang rapes occurred. She also claimed that she had been the victim of one of these assaults. Meanwhile, on Monday morning, we heard that Rod Rosenstein had resigned, or he was expecting to be fired, or maybe he was thinking of resigning. But wait, actually, he's meeting with Trump on Thursday. With me to work through all that is CJR editor and publisher Kyle Pope. Kyle, good to have you back. I'm exhausted just thinking about all this. And it's not even Thursday yet. So my reaction as I watched the news unfold on Monday was that the press didn't acquit itself very well. I'm thinking specifically of the Rosenstein stuff. And I'll read here from a column by the Philadelphia Inquirer's Will Bunch, who writes, quote, The media seemed reluctant to admit that the biggest story on Monday wasn't either the developments in the Rosenstein matter, since there weren't any really, or in Kavanaugh's defense, but the way the naive Charlie Brown of highly paid inside the Beltway access journalism fell thump on its head yet again, duped by the football-yanking Lucy of an administration that yells fake news at its enemies, yet specializes in inventing alternate versions of reality. When we talked earlier, you disagreed with that take. Well, I did in in the broader take. I mean, the truth is that a lot of the reporting was wrong. Right. Rosenstein didn't resign. Um, we don't know whether he offered to resign. We don't actually know exactly what transpired. Yeah, I guess Axios later reported, after initially claiming that he had verbally resigned, that the Justice Department had drawn up a resignation right. letter or statement. So, uh, but I, I sort of, I mean, I think there's a, there was, there's a lot to think through over the last few days, um, including, you know, the New Yorker story and the um, Avenatti story and this Rosenstein story. I think the Rosenstein, like, did he resign or not? I sort of, I sort of put that in the kind of fog of war category where there's something happening. It's fast moving. People are just trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, Rosenstein didn't know what was happening. He didn't know whether he was going to be fired. I don't think Trump's team knew whether he was going to resign. So um, the fact that reporters didn't know wasn't all that mysterious to me. I, I think that you know there is a there is a legitimate question about should you be reporting this stuff in real time or should you just wait? Um, but frankly, that all sounds sort of naive to me. Like, who thinks that's realistic? Um, so, you know, I think it sort of depends on what news organization you work for. Um, you know, if you're in the 24-hour-a-day cable news business, you know, reporting what you know at the time, I mean, it does, I mean, not not to draw parallels to this, but it does really remind me of natural disasters or terrorist attacks or something where there's a lot of caveats given where, you know, where the sort of savvier anchors will say, Look, we don't, we don't really, we we're we're not totally confident. We know exactly what's happening, but we're going to give you the best information that we have. We may have to change it as we go on. 
So, but what's what's the better alternative? Just sort of withholding holding your fire, not saying anything. I guess my issue was that a lot of those caveats didn't exist, or maybe the context was flattened right. because these reports are going out on social media. Yeah. Um, I mean, Axios was the first to it, and their statement was that Rosenstein verbally resigned. Yeah, that, that's why I'm saying that people people did misreport. And, you know, they they then went to try to clean it up the best they could. I think that, I mean, I guess my point is that in a situation like this, where there's a fast-moving development that was bona fide news, um, I give people a little bit of a pass in that situation. Now we should talk about The New Yorker. Yeah, because, because they're not under the same I think it's a different pressure. story. I mean, I actually think that that story they ran about Deborah Ramirez was not ready for her publication. Um, and they tr- they seemed to sort of acknowledge that by putting in a ton of caveats about, you know, um, the, the questions that they, the, you know, the, the questions that weren't answered in the story, the questions about the fuzziness of the memory here. Um, I mean, I have no, I have no doubt that she's telling them the truth and that they did the best they could. I just don't know why they had to get that story out when they did. I mean, I am not a person, and I think there's probably not a lot of people in the world who who go to newyorker.com and hit refresh all day long to see what the very latest thing is they have up. That's not just that's just not in the business that they're in. So, I thought that they I thought that they were premature on that and I think that they were pressured by the calendar um, because they felt like they had to get this story out at the beginning of the week before the Kavanaugh stuff became Mood, and I don't think that was a good look for them. Yeah, you wrote this piece saying that they fell victim to the narrative of the news cycle. And it felt to me reading that like we were kind of seeing the notes from these two great investigative reporters, right. Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer. Yeah. And that there really weren't conclusions in there. They were saying, here is the woman, here is her claim. There's maybe one co- corroborating source, but then there's all these other people who said this didn't occur. And we're just going to lay it all out there and ask a bunch of questions. Yeah. Well, they did more than that, to their credit. But uh, and I think that they tried to wrap themselves in transparency as a um, as an asset to basically say we're you know we we respect our readers enough that we're going to tell them what we know, tell them what we don't know, tell them the questions that we have and that a reasonable person would have, and they can. You know, they can sort of make up their own mind. I just don't think it's incumbent upon the New Yorker to treat its stories that way. And again, um, it, it, you have to contextualize it based on the outlet that you're talking about. I mean, I think that uh, a wire service or a cable news network has a whole different set of questions that they have. I, I you know, I, I did in that piece try to articulate that, you know, you, you need to try to let these pieces live for what they are and and try not to let the outside world come banging in too hard. And the outside world could be a deadline on the clock that says this story needs to be published by a certain date, otherwise it's going to lose its newsworthiness. Or, and I don't know that this was the case with The New Yorker, but the other, the other factor that comes into play is we need to have a story about this because it's something everybody's talking about. And we've been talking to this woman, it's in the works, we just need to get it out. Okay, I see what you're saying there about. Do you think that that what what do you think of that? I because not everybody loved that piece that I wrote or that argument that I was trying to make, which I didn't, which I which I was sort of thinking through as I was writing that. But do you did you agree with it? Did you understand the point I was trying to make? I understood the point you were trying to make. I maybe I'm too deferential to uh, Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer in that I, I agree with you that their transparency was 
an attempt to kind of head off criticisms, to say, look, we have corroborating evidence here. This is a strong claim. Both went on TV the next day to defend it and said, mm. we've met the reporting bar here. Mm. Um, we're also showing that this is a memory from 35 years ago. There are people who don't have the same recollection about the climate there at Yale. Um, I thought the thing that like brought your piece together that did make me understand what you were getting at was the way that it contrasted what The New Yorker did with what The New York Times did in their initial Rod Rosenstein story from last Friday, where they reported that he had discussed invoking the 25th Amendment and also suggested wearing a wire to secretly record Trump, and that The Times took a different approach than The New Yorker did, and that was also a problem. Right. And, and by the way, this is like I'm now out of sync here, but um, just quickly back to The New Yorker for one second. Um, I think it, the, in the days that have followed, they have, have has vindicated them. Um, I think that, um, you know, there's more and more that's coming out about um, the time at Yale and, and Kavanaugh's high school and Deborah Ramirez, who comes off, I think, as a very credible character. So I think They've come off okay in the end. I just think it, it was a moment. I think it caused too many questions at a time when there are a lot of questions being raised about about the press that was that they didn't need to have. I mean, I think they they could have waited another couple of days and it would have served them better. Anyway, that's that. On the Rudenstein story, I could almost make the opposite argument there, which is the the Times has been pilloried for that story um, for basically oh. serving up Trump a um, excuse to get rid of Rosenstein. Right. There were a couple different criticisms. One was that this looks like an obvious attempt from sources. And we we shouldn't. I saw Maggie Haberman tweeting about this, but we, we don't know who they are. Yeah, we shouldn't assume who well, anyone's sources I don't are. Uh, I do not know who the Times' sources were for this. So there was this idea that they were doing the bidding of some faction in the White House that wanted to give Trump a reason to get rid of Rosenstein. Yeah. And then there was also the criticism that not a lot of other outlets could match the idea that he suggested wearing a wire seriously. There was a lot of reporting that, oh, this was in jest. Yeah. So other outlets did support their reporting that these things were said, that he suggested the 25th Amendment, that he said something about wearing a wire. But the Times' sources were adamant about that being a serious statement. Other outlets had different read on it or yeah. had different reporting. Other on people it. said it was sarcastic. Right. Um, I mean, I think, you know, not to be disingenuous in my arguments here, but I actually think the Times didn't go far, didn't, if the New Yorker went too far in its transparency, the Times didn't go far enough. Mm -hmm. Surely they knew that um, this story was going to get attacked as being beneficial to Trump and that the Times was, would be seen as sort of helping make the argument for why Rosenstein should go. In fact, within hours of the um, publication, Don Donald Trump Jr. was like, yeah, well, this proves that Rosenstein was the guy who wrote the Ottomans. Not fake news uh, anymore. Yeah, which, which of course, we don't know. Um, but, I mean, I think that they were, a, they were a little bit tone deaf to how that would be received. And I think they should have done more to sort of contextualize the story a little bit more and to talk about, like, a little bit more transparency about the sourcing or how they went about it. Um, but, for instance, we later learned that this is something they've been working on for weeks, if not months, right. which is a very important fact in this whole argument about, you know, was this just a last ditch thing that Trump was using? To... So I think there was maybe a little bit of haughtiness on their part to think that we're just going to put it out there and we're going to stick to the story. And I think they would have been helped by 
by sort of acknowledging, look, this is this is going to be received a certain way. If there's something we can say to sort of counter that view, it would be helpful. I think that's a criticism that's valid for a lot of the palace intrigue, uh, White House, Washington reporting, in that we all understand, those of us who are paying a ton of attention to this, or anyone who follows a lot of Washington reporting, that there are factions in this administration and in every who are out to get other groups, right? Out to make themselves look good. And it's always been so. Right. And I do think that sometimes we get credulous reporting of people close to Jared and Ivanka or people close to John Kelly or, you know, senior White House officials that doesn't perhaps provide enough transparency about how this individual report fits into a larger context of White House battles. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, I mean, and I think what you're saying is it's very practical because it acknowledges the fact that we're working in a media environment in which the media and the presidency is a central part of the story. In every policy move that Trump makes or every announcement that he makes or every job that he fills, the media response to it is sort of critical to the whole thing because everything he does is framed as this war with the fake news press. Right. The press is his number one campaign opponent now. Right. And and I think the... Um, you know, there there's, there's been a sort of a, a tension in journalism about do you ignore that meta story that's going on and pretend it's not happening and, as Marty Baron likes to say, just do your job? Or do you sort of acknowledge the reality that's going on in the world, which is this is going to be perceived a certain way and we might as well get ahead of it? And you sort of saw this week the opposite polls of the response to that. The Times-Rosenstein story sort of pretending that didn't exist. The New Yorker Kavanaugh story taking it too far into account. So we sort of need to come up with some sort of third way or middle ground or something. It's a tough um, needle to thread. It is really tough, and it and it's, it's a hard thing for human beings and acknowledging human nature to do. Um, but it does get to this other, another related but even more important point, which is, which is how much should media outlets think about or take into consideration what the effect of their reporting is going to be. So should the Times have even cared, for instance, if Trump was going to use this Rosenstein story as a pretext to fire him? Is that something that should be they should be worried about? Well, I think um, the old school take would be, no, you just report the facts yeah. as you have them and like damn the torpedoes. We're right. 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 You know, similarly, should you know, in the old school view, the New Yorker, and in fact, definitely in the old school view, the, the New Yorker would have said, "Damned if we're going to publish this this week when it's not quite ready. We don't care if there's a hearing. We'll publish it in a year, right? <laughs> and it'll be good, and people will read it." Of course, that doesn't work now either. But you know, I, I do think that. Um, well, and, and for Rosenstein, we would have picked up the paper the next day or gotten to the evening news broadcast, right. found out that there had been some confusion. He had gone to the White House, and now he was meeting with Trump. But right. again, that is not the world we but, live in. But there's, a, but there's just a lot, especially on social media, of criticism of news organizations for uh, for the effects that their stories are going to have. Like, you know, you surely you know that if you write this story, it's going to result in this. And I think that's just a dangerous road to go down. Um, I, I think that, you know, as much as we can, we we need to be trying to find a way to be savvy and aware of what's going on in the world. And if we feel like it's going to have a big enough ripple to acknowledge it, but also try not to be swayed. And it's it's really tough. As you said, it's it's a really fine 
needle. I mean, this is such a complicated moment that we're living in for journalism because we are both in the midst of an enormous story that we're trying to cover and to understand, and we are an enormous story that everybody's talking about. And how you do both of those things at the same time is like, you know, patting your head and whatever it is on your stomach. <laughs> it's so hard to do. But that's this is the sort of moment that we're called into right now. It is hard to do. And by the time people listen to this, uh, there will be another round of developments because Kavanaugh may be in front of a Senate Judiciary hearing as you're listening to this. And if, or... and if he is, you should pause this and go <laughs> yeah, listen go, to that. Go, that sounds way Turn more this important. off and go listen <laughs> right. to that. Yeah, this is, uh, this is the context, the meta <laughs> stuff. Uh, go find out what the news is in real time. Um, but no, th- this is a topic that is not going away even after Thursday's news deluge is over. These are questions that news outlets are going to have to continue to ask. And CJR will continue to write about it. All right. Kyle, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Moving on to our second topic, I'm joined by CJR's Matthew Ingram. Matthew, how's everything up in Canada? Pretty good. So your piece is titled, Is the Podcast Bubble Bursting? And it got a lot of attention over the past week. First, can you lay out the events that led you to explore that question? Yeah, so I guess it was a succession of things, you know, one of them being Panoply, which is part of Slate Media, made a fairly big change and decided to get out of the creation of podcasts. So they're still going to distribute, um, but they decided to not kind of do their own anymore. And then quite quickly after that, BuzzFeed let go a bunch of people and said that it was going to restructure its podcasting unit. So it's still going to do them. But again, it's changed the way that it's doing them. It's not going to have dedicated staff anymore. Um, There's going to be a lot more freelancers and so on. And so, you know, those were two fairly major announcements. And there's been a bunch of other sort of rumblings going on in the industry about podcasts and you know, there are still people investing in it, but it feels as though there's also some pulling back as well. Right. I mean, it seems like over the past several years, uh, I, I think a lot of people point to Serial as this breakout moment, that podcasting became one of those mythical things that will save journalism. And now everybody, including CJR, has a podcast. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of, you know, the, the industry is like that, right? Like, especially if you're as desperate for revenue as everyone is, you kind of latch on to anything that looks like, holy cow, this might actually be something, you know, where you can generate a significant amount of audience engagement and and potential revenue and so on. So I think everybody sort of piled into the bandwagon, as it were. And, and, you know, whenever that happens, it's inevitable that there's going to be people it's not going to work for. Not to say podcasting as a whole isn't working, but that it's not going to work for everybody. Right. It's not like Stamps.com and MeUndies can support the entire industry. (laughs) Yeah. So is the issue here that, hey, we've reached peak podcast and we're going to start seeing a contraction of people in the space? Or is it that this is just kind of a reordering? I mean, you mentioned that some other people are investing. Uh, Slate editor Jacob Weisberg announced he was leaving the outlet to start a new audio company with Malcolm Gladwell around the same time this other news was breaking. So is this just a, a case of some outlets doing a little bit of reevaluation, those that hadn't invested big time saying, maybe this isn't for us, but other people are still getting into it? Yeah, that's what it feels like to me, a kind of reshuffling in a way Vox announced 
just the other day that it's starting a bunch of new podcasts. Um, I think you're, you know, especially with a, a company like BuzzFeed, they're under some pressure revenue-wise or have been. And so if, if something isn't working really, really, really well, they probably just can't devote the resources to it. It just doesn't make economic sense. But if you're an organization where podcasts have already been kind of a core part of what you do, like for BuzzFeed, it felt as though it was not an afterthought, but but not sort of their core business. But if you're someone who's focused on them from the beginning and you really give them the resources they need and you, you know, you pay attention to them and, and then I think they can work. So I think we're seeing a bit more focusing, like people who do it are doubling down and those who don't have the time or resources to do it are just are kind of backing out. Right. I mean, I think there's this idea that creating a podcast is something anybody can do with two microphones. And to some extent, that's true, right? Uh, but to do it well, like the New right. York Times, for example, has. They imported some real talent from people with a lot of experience in the audio space, and then they lucked in, in some ways, to Michael Barbaro as a host. And obviously, it's been a huge success there. But you mentioned a place like BuzzFeed, where it was something of an afterthought. Is that sort of the message here, is that, look, this can be a big part of your brand. This can be a big part of your revenue if you take the time to invest and make a, a really successful and well-done product. I, I think that is the lesson, and it's a lesson that we could apply to all sorts of other things. I mean, yes, anyone can start a podcast. It's really easy to do, but, you know, it, it's hard to do well. And so that takes some effort. It takes some skill. It takes some planning. It takes some focus. You really have to understand what you're doing you have to understand what your audience wants you can't just you know buy a microphone and put a couple of white guys in a studio to <laughs> talk about whatever they saw on tv that that morning i mean you need to really think about how you're doing it and and i think if you do do that then it can be successful it's not going to you know it's not going to save your company if you're having revenue problems but it's certainly one way that you can reach an audience and and have some success well, speaking as two white guys talking into microphones, um, I wondered what kind of reaction you got, because my experience in writing about podcast is that the medium has some pretty vociferous and uh, active defenders on social media. What sort of comments and feedback did you get to the piece? So I definitely got some, you know, that's not true. Podcasting isn't I mean, even though I asked a question, I didn't say it was bursting. Yeah, to be clear, um, you, you didn't say, like, this is the end of right. podcasts. Right. So there was a certain amount of, no, there's no bubble, or it isn't bursting, or podcasts are great. And, 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 but there was also, I think, some, some response that was much more along the lines of what I was hoping for, which was, you know, this is a, a necessary kind of contraction in a way, people who weren't focusing on it or weren't doing enough to focus on it or getting out, that's probably good. That that will kind of separate the wheat from the chaff and 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 allow people who are doing a good job to focus more on it and get maybe get more attention. So I think there was generally a, a positive response. It's not, you know, like we said, podcasting should never be done ever again and no one's going to succeed at it, just that you need to go at it in a certain way. Right. I mean, that was one of the things that struck me is that this is still a really new industry. I mean, you've had people, the Bill Simmons and Mark Marins of the world who have been around for a decade doing it. 
But this sort of boom in podcasts where everybody has one is still relatively new. And so some contraction, some settling of the industry seems like it's probably in order. Yeah, it makes total sense. Like, you're right. This is still a relatively new, you know, it, it's it's older than some things. I mean, it is named after the iPod, for God's sake, which hardly anybody remembers. But But it is still relatively new in kind of internet terms. And I think we're you know, we're still figuring out what makes a good podcast. What is, is it a, it's a kind of a magic in a way. It's like movies, you know, you need a specific type of host. You need specific type of kind of audience. You need a a topic that really resonates. And some of it is unpredictable. You know, it's like why a certain restaurant takes off or, and so there's there's always going to be, I think, some that work and you don't know why and some that don't work and you don't know why. That's fair. Uh, well, in the meantime, what are you listening to right now? <laughs> any re- any recommendations for those of us uh, living through the bubble? So I have to confess that I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, <laughs> I haven't found time kind of in my day when I know lots of people listen when they're commuting. I work out of my house, so I don't. My commute is like thirty seconds down the hallway, and I I don't uh, listen at the gym or anything like that. So. I wish I actually had more time. Um, and that is one of the things that people have mentioned that is difficult with podcasts. It's hard to kind of browse or snack them in the way lots of people do with information now. It takes a certain commitment of time. But, I mean, there are lots of great ones out there that I that I would love to spend more time with. Well, I hope that, uh, say, over this weekend you get to dive in a little bit. But thanks so much for the time. And everyone can check out the piece up at cjr.org. Great. Thanks for having me. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks to Matthew and Kyle for talking through the news of the week. You can check out the pieces they wrote and all the other great content we've got up at cjro.org, and we'll see you next week.